0: The views and comments expressed on the space show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The space show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the space show are primarily for educational purposes. By a lift of eight, <coughs> two, one. It's the Space Show with Dr. David Livingston. Broadcasting in seven continents, consistently bringing you new, quality news and interviews with the best and brightest minds in the new space economy. Here is the founder and host of the Space Show, the man who best articulates the vision of space commercial enterprise, Dr. David Livingston.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday afternoon space show program and i am your host and your moderator for the program david livingston and thank you for tuning in another excellent program with um uh john strickland uh who is back with us i'll say more about john in just a minute a couple of quick announcements this is a, a full space show program 90 minutes if you want to call in and, and talk to john or get an email to him at Space at com. Uh, please do so. Don't wait until the very, very last minute. And uh, if you do want to call, it is toll free 866-687-7223. All of the newsletters are up and available. So you can see the schedule for next week. It is a short week because we do not do a program on either Mother's Day or Father's Day. And Mother's Day is a week from today. So there will be no Sunday show next week. And, um, all the information for listening uh, is going to be on those newsletters, but uh, Pascal Lee is back with us for Tuesday night, uh, and Hotel Mars has Doug Messier on it. And then on Friday, May 12th, uh, Melody Shar, space architect, will be back with us. She's been on the show before on space architecture, living in space, space settlement, and related topics, and then, as I said, no show on Mother's Day. By the way, a couple of really interesting shows coming up. After Mother's Day, Rebecca Hahn is back with us, and she has done a peer review paper. Uh, she's out of the uh, University of St. Louis, I think, and it is on tracking and itemizing and identifying the volcanoes on Venus. I saw that paper, and it's really fascinating. And Rebecca is a PhD graduate student, and she is going to be with us about her. Paper And then, uh, real quickly, Friday on May 19th, Anna Krylov is with us. She is the Russian-USC chemistry professor, and she has been op-edding and writing articles and peer-reviewed articles about what's happening to peer review in education, and this is worth talking about. And um, uh, Anna has been with us before and she's going to be with us about some of her op-eds and papers and what's been happening to science uh, in academia, especially here in the United States but elsewhere as well. Michelle Hanlon is May 21st, and then uh, I'm off to ISBC, and uh, we convene June 2nd with John Bucknell uh, for on space solar power. So that's what's coming up for the space show. If you have any comments or questions... Just email me, Space at the spaceshow.com. Uh, a couple of other quick things. Uh, the newsletter goes out at 6 a.m. in the morning, West Coast time. And if you want to be on it, make sure I have your email address. And you can send it to me at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at the SpaceShow.com. And note that everything we do is archived and archived on our website as well as turned into podcast on all of our various podcast servers. Again, if you have any questions, e- email us. Uh, we do still have our store. If you're interested in logo wear, check it out. And you get to that space show store by going to the picture of Pepper listening to the space show. And that takes you to our Cafe Press space show store. Uh, as I have been doing um, with extra oomph and energy of late, and that is stressing the need to support the space show, we are 100% listener supported, so if you like our program, the format, talking to guests real time or emailing them after the show, perhaps you're listening on the archives, uh, if you like this format and you like the kind of programming we do, help us out and do support as we are a nonprofit 501 501c3. Our parent is One Giant Leap Foundation. The easiest way to donate is through PayPal and on the upper right of our homepage, thespaceshow.com. There is a PayPal link. Click on that, and that will take you to the One Giant Leap Chase Bank PayPal page. And uh, that's how you make an easy contribution. And again, if you're a federal U.S. taxpayer, you do get a tax deduction for your gift. For those of you that are using Zelle, and more and more of you are using Zelle, the email address for Zelle is david at One, O-N-E, giantleapfoundation.org. And if you prefer to send a check, it's made payable to uh, One Giant Leap Foundation and it mails to our Las Vegas mailing address. That address should be on the PayPal button and it's on our homepage or simply email me if you have trouble finding it. Um, In addition, we do have sponsors uh, and billboard advertisers and they get banner ads running across our homepage which they and they alone can change any time they want. And if you would like to be a sponsor and have your message read on space show programs, full-length space show programs, so uh, after John leaves the show, please don't leave the air because I will read our sponsor messages. Uh, But right now we shout out to Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, Celestis, the National Space Society, and Dr. Haim Benaroya. And uh, again, if you're interested, please email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. So our guest today is returning guest John Strickland, and many of you know John, and you've heard him on the show, and you know him through the National Space Society or the Howard Bloom email list or countless of other sources. He's been an active member of space and science-related organizations since 1961 when he joined the American Rocket Society as a student member. In 76, he joined the National Space Institute and L-5. Those are the parents of today's National Space Society. He was the founder of the Austin Space Frontier Society and has served as its chairman from 1981 to present. His full bio is on the space show. He's a big participant and contributor at ISDC this year not too far from where John is in Austin. It's in Frisco, Texas, which is part of Dallas. And if you're going and you've never met John, find him and introduce yourself to him. You can read his full bio on the Space Show website. John, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Great. Um, You went down to Boca Chica to watch the launch. Tell us about it.
2: Well, I drove down there uh, because they had a, a scrub. gave us time to get ready for the trip and then that one day then like on a Wednesday then we dro- drove down there Thursday eight hours from Austin to Brownsville Got in motel and uh, went over to the uh, uh, site at, at the Boca Chica in, in late afternoon and we were able to walk all over all, along the road all the way to the beach that photograph of the rocket and uh, then uh, the next morning we get up at 430 with our friends from Oklahoma and, uh, went to the, uh, South Padre Island viewing site. And they had a, sort of like a flat beach facing south, almost like the square corner of a long rectangle. And the beach there is not sand, it's all jagged trunks of, uh, of, uh, big slabs of rock and concrete and stuff as a, as a stabilizer. And there's a little peninsula to our, to our right. Uh, and they had a huge area set up for all the space to ex employees as a as a as a safe viewing area uh, and the area at, at when we got there about five thirty a m was jammed with people already, but we had a good perfectly good view so um the, view, the, the thing they the thing was about to go off and they had a, a hold thought, I thought it was going to be a twenty minute hold put my camera away, and then they suddenly there it goes. And because I didn't have a radio or anything, because uh, it was a long walk into the to the beach. Uh, and the rocket uh, basically struggled to ca- climb out of the cloud. It created a huge launch cloud. Um, it, they, they left the booster on the pad for six seconds to turn all the engines on while it was scouring this huge crater in the concrete pad under the launch stool which supports the launch ring, not a launch pad. There's no real launch pad there. Uh, if you had a launch pad directly under the ant rocket engines, uh, the unimaginably bad things would have happened. So um, the three engines did not start at, at liftoff. off. Um, as I say, the launch cloud is so large that some people thought the rocket had already exploded. Uh, so, Trying to clear the tower, did not do very much damage to the launch ring, which contains all the launch pad equipment. Um, the flame goes through the middle of this ring. That was the whole idea, to minimize damage. Um, this, the launch was excruciatingly slow, slower than a space shuttle or even a Saturn V launch, of which I witnessed both. Um, uh, the biggest thing that I noticed was what I call the supersonic crackle. It's not just the roar of the engines. The, the gas is coming out of the engines at near hypersonic speed is interacting with the still air around it, making lots of little supersonic shock waves. And that's what makes the crackle. Each one of those is a miniature uh, sonic boom, sort of. And it, it, the crackle at that, about six miles away, was almost air splitting. And it, the vehicle. This was a, this was a, this vehicle was a beast that dominated the whole area for probably at least, uh, uh, uh five to ten miles in all directions. Anybody who was inside or outside would have heard it and gone outside. And it gave me the impression because it was struggling and going straight up and sort of toward the east that it might explode or and fall on in an area that it wasn't, that it wasn't supposed to fall on. But it finally gradually Moved toward the east, you could see flares in the exhaust all the way along as it climbed up. As one or one or, one or more engines uh, had to shut down or had problems, um, so engine 19 had to be shut down at 27 seconds into flight. One center uh, engine, one of those that gimbals, was obviously out. The heat shield damage to another engine occurred at, at 62 seconds, and eighty uh, near engine, a 30, uh, the damage to the steering and, uh, system occurred at about 85 seconds. And shortly after that, a slow tumble of the vehicle started. Not a fast tumble, a slow tumble. This is a 400 foot long vehicle. Uh, if it was tumbling fast, it would surely be pulled apart by its own centrifugal force. But the vehicle held together with the engine still all firing. Um, the uh, button, they pushed the button finally after several tumbles, and you could, with, one, with a different person's video, that was much sharper, um, you could see the the, gas, the gases coming out of the fuel tanks. The vehicle still did not rupture until 40 seconds after they pushed the button. Um, the engines continued to fire until the actual vehicle breaking up uh, instant occurred. Uh, they got a huge amount of data. They, they launched this vehicle because they have a whole row of vehicles in waiting, like ladies in waiting there. Um, and they couldn't continue to work on those vehicles and build them correctly without the data from an actual launch. And so that's why they launched this vehicle, which otherwise would have been scrapped anyways, turned back into, uh, stainless steel. So, uh, that was, that was my impression of the launch. And it was like the Apollo or shuttle period with a sheer number of people watching uh, in a actually much more restricted area because I'm sure there were other people watching at other sites. The Rocket Ranch had a site that I did not go to. Uh, I didn't know if the tree line would obscure the, 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 the view of the launch pad or not. But uh, I had a very, very clear view of it, and I got some good pictures. Not really of the vehicle going up. But of the, all the vehicles and, and stuff that we were walking around the previous, uh, the previous evening. So what they're going to do, uh, with the, with the next vehicle, which will be a booster nine, uh, it has all electric instead of hydraulic gambling for the engines. So if a hydraulic system is damaged, each engine's electrical system will still, will still hear the engine. Uh, all engines on number 9 are new modern Raptors, and they can make it much faster, though. About one Raptor per day now. Um, they do need an, another FAA approval of a more robust uh, destruction system. Nobody ever thought the vehicle would hold together like that. In the words of Dr. Brown from the uh, uh, pre-Holidays, uh, we built it too strong, unquote. So... The vehicle held together under stresses; it never was designed to hold together under. So it's a really tough vehicle, um, and the engines continued to fire, even though there was visible fires at the back of the at, at the back of the vehicle, among the engines. And the engines just kept kept running and running. Um, they're going to have they're going to reduce the pre-lift off pad time from six seconds to two and a half seconds. To reduce any damage to the pad, because they think they can shut, they can turn the engines on in series, say, about every quarter second. So that's important. You're also going to have a huge, uh, twin layered water pancake underneath the, the, the launch stool. That's the stool of the three, or the four huge legs that supports the launch ring at the top. Just about 60 to 80 feet above the ground. There's no, there's no launch pad directly into the rocket. The launch, any concrete is about 80 feet below. Uh, that's the concrete that the flames gouged the crater in and then blew, blew up uh, c- concrete powder, or what was concrete powder, miles away. Uh, and threw pieces of concrete several thousand feet. Um uh, they're gonna have a, this high pressure, a flame bucket, or at least a flame pad with holes in it, it will squirt water up at the flames with water pressure higher than the than the flame pressure. So hopefully the uh, this this pine creek will not be will not be melted. I still suggest that they have a flame bucket that aims the flames up at about a 20 degree angle in a radial pattern around the base of the uh, the launch stool, um that would keep keep the the exhaust from blowing up a lot of dust in the the neighboring area. But now that's his his operation. So that's that's my, now the last item on this was rebuttal to legal challenges to SpaceX.
1: Hold on, before you go there, what was, did did you pick up on any of the mood of the people there or any of the comments, what were people talking about or saying?
2: Yeah, well, there was a, uh, right next to us there was a South Texas Relatively new South Texas NSS chapter. whom uh-huh. we had we had dinner with him later, and uh, he was uh, uh, oligog, and the people there were extremely excited to see this launch because we've been waiting so long for it. Because like the last thirty meter or, or t- ten meter uh, vehicles were were flying like two years ago. All this time has been getting ready for it and getting the permission of the Almighty FAA. So, uh, the people there were cheering when it came up, and the people there were cheering, uh, and especially the people on the, on the, uh, SpaceX Peninsula were cheering. They had even had some buildings there in the peninsula. Uh, they had a whole big, really fancy setup there for them. Uh, so, and even when the vehicle, after it blew up, they were still cheering because they not only got off the pad, no damage, to the to the uh, to the launch ring but they got close to where they would have uh, been able to uh, start the second stage up i don't know why they couldn't separate the second stage from the first stage when it was spinning they should have done that but they all people often say they should have thought of that after the fact that people were cheering all the way along even in spite of the fact that they everybody knew it had problems but this was a brand new vehicle you now all, the, all these rocket engines had never been used in a launch before, you know, so uh, it's just an amazing sight. And uh, if anybody, it's really worth seeing, and whenever they uh, announce the second launch, I will try to go down there again to see it. The second launch should be smooth, and it should come out of that pad and tilt toward the east rapidly and should vanish toward the east rapidly because of its very large thrust-to-mass ratio.
1: Um, so you were about to tell about the environmental litigation that's now been filed.
2: Yeah, well, these are the same environmentalists who oppose uh, energy by humans, the use of energy, who oppose nuclear power, who, some of them oppose space solar power, some of them oppose even fusion power with almost no radiation at all. Uh, and so my, my, my look take at this, the best analogy to the Boca Chica area, An issue is the Cape Canaveral area itself with the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge. A rocket launch site protects the actual land area, which the wildlife needs to survive at all, from developers or industry since nobody wants to live near a launch site. If developed, a site like this would have essentially no wildlife at all. There would be zero wildlife. None of the materials ejected from the concrete pad are toxic, by the way, and no animals or birds were hit by pieces of concrete. Uh, note if you if you notice uh, uh, on a on a suburban lawn. I've attended a couple uh, meetings uh, outdoors on the lawns recently in town. The city and suburban lawns are sterile of animal life, insects and animals. There, there, there's no lizards, no beetles. No grasshoppers, no nothing. The lawn is is quiet and sterile, Um, and this includes city parks and things like that. So we prefer not to have lawns. Until and our land, they're basically just it's sort of wild, except where we're actually using an area. Well, I don't. I like to look at lawns, sure, but yeah, we don't really don't have any.
1: Um, What do you think of the merit of the litigation so far?
2: Oh, I think it's meritless, because these groups—they—they they get money, they get contributions, and they get ego boo from the uh, from the ability to stop somebody from doing what they want to do. So it's just you know it's the same group that fought them earlier. So they, there's no damage to, that anybody can claim to any damage except SpaceX property, which will be quickly repaired.
1: Is is there any? Feedback yet from from the FDA, or all of this is too new. You're not not to the wait. FDA, the FAA. Sorry. About yeah, FAA, yeah,
2: yeah. You have to wait for months. But even then, they really didn't say very much about that about the previous uh, issue, which or the giving the launch license.
1: Has much so I don't know that you'll hear anything. Has Musk said anything?
2: Well, I other, other non SpaceX sources have said that the. The ca- the cases are meritless. That's all I know. I um, have not pay much attention to it. I mean, they could hold them up, and the Biden people could uh, could support him and tell the FAA to stop Biden, and that could be the end of his operation there. And then they could prohibit him from using a launch site at the Cape. And you know, to launch to orbit, you have to use at least an eastward or northward or southward facing coastline. You can't launch from a western-facing coastline and less, like at Vandenberg. You can launch south at an angle from it. So he'd be in a hurt, and I think he'd be angry enough to move to another country.
1: Well, he'd still need a launch license, so I don't know what that would gain him.
2: Well, if yeah, but if he moved to another country, they couldn't control him.
1: That's not true. He's a... He's a U.S. citizen, and the rocket has U.S. components in it, so he is subject to getting a U.S. launch license. Well, then he's got a
2: whole other company in a different country that has an eastern-facing coastline. It may take him a while, but he'll still do better than the SLS will.
1: Um, The
2: SLS costs, aside from anything else, $4 billion to launch, and Elon figures it will probably cost yeah, the cost to, to SpaceX will cost about less than $100 million, possibly under $5 million to launch, if it can be easily landed in the entire rocket reuse, when they get it all, all working in good order.
1: Um, How, a year or two, you know. Do you um, uh, see his moving to the Cape? I mean, I know a lot of people say that's the alternative. There's been people posting on Howard's uh, email list that that he's going to probably move to the Cape because Boca will not be accessible due to the environmental litigation. What's your take on that?
2: Well, he has an industrial site at Roberts Road, which is sort of, I think, northwest or north of the VAB, if people know where the VAB is, Uh, and then... The uh, launch site is northeast of the VAB, you know, closer to the actual B. And like launch complex 39A and B are the two uh, Apollo and shuttle launch sites. And one right. of those is was turned over to SpaceX, and they're still afraid that the rocket would damage the um, the, the the pad 39A itself. But they're they're using that pad to launch Falcon rockets from. They could, they could theoretically use it, but they'd have to rework it, because as you know, any concrete underneath the rocket nozzles is, is gone, you know. <laughs> and they probably would say, oh, the rocket, this rocket would damage our crawler transporter, which has, it's right under the rocket, unless they don't even use it. They I don't know if they'd use it at all, because they can erect the rocket directly. They, they use what I call a tire mattress to move the rocket. From uh, at Bogotica from the ferry area, which is about a mile and a quarter inland from the from the launch area, which is about maybe a thousand feet or less from the beach. So the launch the launch goes directly over the beach. I actually walked out to the beach and collected a few seashells, of which all the uh, the big jeep people were running their jeeps over the seashells and crushing all of them. So that was a little bit annoying, but. I got a nice uh, not a, lot, a few shells and quite quite a few pretty shell fragments from for my grandniece. Um,
1: listeners, um, the telephone line is available if you would like to um, talk to uh, John about uh, Starship or, for that matter, anything else. The number is eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. We're going to switch topics in just a minute, so uh, this would be a great time if you have any Star. Starship uh, commentary uh, email uh, for John is Dr. Space D R S P A C E at the dot Are you going to post any of your pictures anyplace, John? Do you have a website where people can see the if pictures you, that want you took? You want
2: me to send in some of my pictures that I took of the of the launch area and the and the building area the evening before the launch, which I got some excellent pictures. Because I was wa- able to walk past the rocket and then back past it when the uh, sun was lower and got the sun glinting off the stainless steel rocket very nicely. And even my brother got a picture uh, looking inside one of the uh, Hiberias and you could see one of the other uh, starships inside it.
1: Um, you have an email from Todd in San Diego and Todd says, uh, John, during your Uh, First part of this broadcast, you have been um, talking about energy issues and um, you've made some fairly negative comments regarding the Biden administration uh, being against this, 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 and this. Uh, We do have some possibilities for space solar power. There's a lot of news about maybe nuclear propulsion is finally coming to be maybe even more nuclear power terrestrially. Um, what are your thoughts on finally being able to get energy from space and use nuclear energy in space?
2: Well, I, I didn't say that the Biden people were against space solar power, but I said their policy of actually shrinking our economy and, and our energy production while in enormous hordes of people are coming in at the southern border adding to our population who will need energy to live at the same level of energy use as Americans, which is about 11 kilowatt rate of energy use as a constant rate uh, for, for, for a citizen, which, of course, varies by the citizen. Uh, so, yes, yeah, um, we're going to be going into a, 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 a coverage of space solar power. Uh, I've been following the environmental groups. And their attitude toward energy um, from since the early 1980s, and there's still three uh, of the main environmental groups that are actually opposed to uh, the nuclear power. And I think I have the over here. Um, here it is? Yeah. I can pull the right sheet up. Well, it's, I think it's like, um, I think the, um, what is it, the, the, the Green,
1: uh, is it Green? Greenpeace.
2: Greenpeace is one group. Um, I'll have to pull up my original document here. Uh, does that mean I'm kind of not being able to find the, uh, this is it.
1: Well, uh, uh, move on.
2: Wait, Otherwise, uh, Greenpeace is one, uh-huh. um, and there's a, several other ones. The Sierra Club actively opposes nuclear power. The Environmental Defense Fund supports existing plants, but it's against new ones. Uh, Greenpeace uh, actively opposes nuclear power, saying the wind and solar are more environmentally friendly. And if you think of all the incredible amount of materials that all that all those windmills and solar cells that you can't recycle easily, the Audubon Society asserts that nuclear power is not a desirable option to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that's that's, and that's so on and so on. So uh, the Natural Resources Council is skeptical of power generated by existing technologies, which might support might support a new generation so that's that's yeah very brief coverage i would i could go over the whole topic i have a whole what what
1: what is the space industry doing or benefiting from or contributing to or doing something to energy from space and energy in space
2: well we have generated in the last several years a lot of international en- energy e- interest in space solar power. Um, it, the Japanese and and, um, and Chinese have been interested for a long time. Uh, Dr. Glaze's book, I have a 60-page chapter in, came out in 1998. And we had we had participation in that book from all around the world, with France, England, Russia, China, Japan, the United States. I don't know, we're, we're all else. Uh, and, and, and in coverage of, of the, of the whole topic. But, uh, then it went through a period of not very much activity. And then about, about 2008, there was sort of a rebound. Uh, and it picked up a little bit again. And in the last several years, there has been a lot more. I think what's going on is that some of the people who are interested in the environment are actually realizing that the, the, the sheer amount of physical resources that would be required to be mined, uh, smelted, transported, uh, fabricated, and erected to make uh, solar panels and wind farms is simply, you know, we can't it'd be break, breaking everybody's bank and using up an enormous amount of resources. And space solar power uses something like a thousand times less actual mass in terms of resources and land, and, and uh, ten times less in land area than ground solar power and wind is a little hard to to uh, to compare because a wind farm only uses a tiny amount of the of the land area around it. But we're going to be going into that shortly. But the, the many one uh, result that I that I read. In my uh, in my research here, uh, is that this uh, particular article that came out is did a, did a survey of the environmental scientists, and they discovered that the environmental scientists uh, generally were supportive of nuclear power, but the people in the organizations were not. Half of the top six organizations um, were against base solar power, and the other three were, were were lukewarm supporters, if that much. And the rest of it um, was just you know they were they were they were they weren't really talking about it. Other organizations don't talk about it; they don't want to offend anybody. So if you thought it was an important issue to save the Earth or whatever, that's how they say it, uh, then you you should be willing to offend people to uh, make your point. But they, they are. Most of them aren't.
1: So, why, why do they oppose space solar power?
2: Well, when the phrase concept of space solar power first, uh, they would say reared its ugly head, unquote, back in about 1978 to 81. I mean, a big federal study was done and of course at that time we did not have an inkling of reusable rockets so of course it would be ridiculous to launch all that mass into space using expendable rockets but the environmental groups I uh, have a copy of the uh, whole earth a special issue on uh, 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 a space, a space solar power and so forth from about that period and they have all these quotes from these people. And and since people ask the question, part of it's what I call energy guilt. That the environmentalists think that the excessive use of energy, even on Earth, which is a one ten thousandth of the left of what the sun delivers to us, will somehow build up what they call entropy heat in, in, in the Earth's atmosphere, which is, of course, pseudoscience. And, and now I've got a number of quotes here. But one guy says, both history and property humility, that's basically, he's using the word hubris in effect, urge us to view our current crop of problems as calling for your wisdom within the bounds of what we know best, the wisdom that sees the human species indefinitely, if not forever, is bound to the earth. That's one point of view. And then a couple other ones are more, more specific. Um, emergence of the energy guilt. Ideology in the late 1960s was apparently caused by the understandable fear among some environmentalists that given unlimited cheap, clean energy, mankind's technology will rampage over the earth so rapidly that most of nature will be destroyed before anyone, anyone even realizes what's happening. That was a real fear among some real people. So out of that, fear. And fear often drives people to do irrational things. Quote, uh Emery Lovins. It would be a little short of disastrous for to discover a source of clean, cheap, abundant energy because of what we might do with it. We ought to be looking for energy sources that don't give us the excesses of concentrated energy with which we might do mischief to the earth and each other. Another quote, Barry, Wendell Berry. Humans are destructive in proportion to their supposition of abundance. If they are faced with an infinite abundance of energy they will become infinitely destructive and lastly Paul Ehrlich said giving society cheap abundant energy would be giving would be the equivalent of getting an idiot child a machine gun these are directly words directly from the radical environmentalists and they affect and still control these these main national environmental groups so you yeah, know, there are I am a pragmatic environmentalist, I I fought against uh, sewage and septic waste in Lockport, New York in 1970 and and up to 75 before we moved to Austin. And from starting around 1980, I helped found the Protect Lake Travis Association, which fought against both point source pollution like sewage waste and dumping, of which we have completely stopped going into Lake Travis. And also non-point source pollution, which even involved Walter Cronkite, and the Lower Colorado River Authority made a movie which filmed some of the footage on our property, uh, and we had actually had Walter Cronkite as a guest in Austin uh, against the uh, the runoff type of pollution, like waste from uh, from farms, uh, excess fertilizer, and so forth, called and I think the movie is called Pointless Pollution, referring to non-point source pollution. So in that organization, the PLDA, still exists, and I'm still a director of it. So I claim my credentials as being an environmentalist, but as a rational and pragmatic one, as opposed to the majority of ideological environmentalists, and, the, and not blaming the majority of people who support environmentalism, but are... Tricked into supporting the ideological groups because they have the advertising budget.
1: Um, Carl, oh uh, yeah, Carl's in Houston, and sent you a note. And he said, he said, since you're strong in space advocacy, what do you recommend for uh, space advocates and interested parties in space, solar power, and nuclear in space to do in order to get momentum for it?
2: Well, right now. How would we build a new energy plant if we don't have any energy? And so Biden administration is, is deliberately cut back our domestic energy production when at the end of the previous administration we had a surplus. So now we are paying more to other countries to get energy instead of the other countries paying us. And with all, I said, with all these hundreds of thousands of people immigrating to the U.S., among them, hundreds of terrorists that are being allowed to come right in uh, the poor border people uh, I've told the border people at, at the checkpoints in South Texas I get you guys have been given an impossible job and he nodded so uh, it's just the, the, so the first thing is we need to maintain our current energy supply and as our population grows unless we want everybody to be forced to reduce energy and live in poverty, as, the, as some of the people want us to do, especially environmentalists, the radicals. Uh, we An industry cannot operate without an energy supply. They need different kinds of energy. I support electric cars because for some people, an electric car is very beneficial. But where are you going to get the energy uh, in California, especially if they're going to require people to use electric cars when they don't have the uh, energy plants to uh, produce the power to run them so as far as space goes as I said let's maintain our current energy base and increase it steadily based on our increasing GDP uh, for the future we do not support the, the space launch system the, S, the FLF because it costs it's an expendable rocket it, it was obsolete before it was designed and it cost about $4 billion just to launch one of those rockets. Now, if you're, if you're a uh, mission manager or a, a chief scientist of a planetary mission and are offered a launch that say, SpaceX might offer for $100 million and offered another launch by NASA for $4 billion uh, out, of their, out, of the, out of the budget for that particular mission, which one would you pick?
1: Well, assuming reliability is a constant, then uh, the 100 million always.
2: Yeah. Now, of course, remember how many blow-ups they had when they were developing the, the Falcon because Elon is, what is perfectly welcome to blow up rocket. And I know people have a huge reaction whenever he blows up a rocket. But he does the development process much more rapidly because there's nobody on board, right? Right. Uh, there are no property damages occurring to the, except to the rocket, and they're, it's going to be thrown away anyways. Uh, all the other rockets before Elon were always thrown away. The only rocket that was that never thrown away until NASA got hold of it was the DCX. I saw that DCX, the second launch, take off, go up a couple hundred feet, hover and rear there perfectly still, uh, uh, September 11th, 1993, at White Sands and gently come down and land. And without the DCX program, which is sort of an offshoot of the Star Wars uh, military program um, run by the military before NASA got hold of it, um, then I don't know that Elon would have been confident that he could build a reusable rocket. That is, a rocket that lands on its legs instead of requiring wings to land like an airplane, which greatly reduces the mass, but also greatly reduces the, the Structural mass of the rocket is you don't need the structural mass to, to support the rocket body when it's horizontal Versus when it's vertical a rocket is all of its structure. was it, designed to support vertical weight The Wings are a very large Horizontal weight when it's coming down and landing so that's the advantage of landing vertical. It also takes less propellant So that was a big breakthrough when they when they did that and Elon said in his mind, he was saying, you once he gets the company going, then he will work on reusable rocket, which I've been supporting for like 30 years. This, I know it was stupid to throw away. Would you throw it like, uh, some of the people, uh, have, have suggested for like, past 25 years? Uh, Bert had a video out on it, showing them, uh, taking an airliner to, uh, Los Angeles and throwing away each part after they land and then building a brand-new airliner, flying back to New York, then throwing away each part and building a whole new airliner each time. So how much would it take a cost to fly to L.A. from New York then? Millions of dollars, right? Why is space expensive? Because they're mostly using a spindle a And why is it still expensive? Because there are no competitors right now to, to SpaceX. Once there are competitors... We're quite not sure why their competitors have been delayed for so long, but Rocket Lab is coming along pretty nicely, and other people are, are slowly coming up. Once there are competitors with a reasonable rocket, uh, the price will come down To once, there's, once there is competition. There will be a reasonable price down to where they can afford to build new rockets, and they won't need the, the currently higher prices that they're charging. They're using that money very well, by
1: the way. Um, listeners, I want to call your attention to the fact again that our phone line is available. We'd like to hear from you. 866 687 7223. And um, you can also email us, Dr. Space at the com. And um, on, the, um, on the space solar power as well as nuclear. Uh, From the best of your knowledge, do we have congressional support uh, for either of these two programs to be developed as space resources?
2: Well, every year we have a March storm of of citizen lobbying in Washington. Previously, mostly the people who were supported with the congressional aid. We're now getting more actual congressmen and senators who seem to be supporting it, but I've not yet seen a committee issue a statement yet like an energy committee uh, in support of it so that would be very helpful but many government agencies it even seems like the energy department itself the DOE uh, which has resisted uh, very strenuously uh, any interest in space solar for 25 years may, may or may not be getting interested in it because they again see that the anti-nukes are still successful we're getting a few potential uh, orders for new nuclear reactors now. And the European, even the Europeans at the same time that they're shutting down their nuclear reactors when they're desperately short of energy, have opened a coal mine on the site of a town which they evacuated in Germany. Is it, does that make any sense? It's, it's just mind boggling. But people, the, the, the things that politicians do, about half of them seem irrational to me. Um, so, looking back, what, what do we need for space solar power? We need more support among the agencies and among the legislative branch, and certainly among the the um, the presidency and the White House uh, to get to get something done. the president is opposed to it, and will veto any bill, uh, unless the Congress has a veto-proof majority, it's not going to go anywhere. That's for at least another year and a half because we don't know what's going to happen after that. Um, so we do need to have a, a good steady energy supply so we can build new energy plants and build new factories and so forth. You should see the NASA power line that they put just a few years ago running from Brownsville out to Chica. I talked to one of the guys who did the surveying for that power line. It's, it's very, very heavy. They have right beside the road. A two megawatt, I think two of them, two megawatt uh, generator uh, for for uh, emergency use, or you know just sitting there if it was needed if somebody crashed into a power pole or something. It, it, it's it's inside a, a standard shipping container. It gives you some idea of how how powerful they can make something. So then, to to be able to launch our satellites at a affordable rate, the first step. Is obviously a reusable rocket uh, and Elon is himself somehow thinks that because you're converting solar photons into electrons into microwave uh, photons and then back into current uh, is is there's too many conversions and so how that that seems to be, to be a waste of energy but the solar photons are free and the total amount of mass of material and cost for the space solar power will be vastly lower than the total amount of material that you'd use, and even the acreage that you'd need for the for the uh, rectenna areas versus the solar farms and wind farms. So that that would be a huge so- savings of money, material, and and uh, and land area if you if we can move towards space solar end. I'm going to be going into a list of some of the different arguments for space-solar in a few minutes. So, But the second step is our uh, development of space, which means industry in space. And the Starship certainly will provide the ability for uh, someone who wants to build the space industry and to put space factories and other industrial equipment into orbit, at least to start with, that will make the start for the ability to harvest materials from the moon and asteroids. And since it does not take thousands of tons to get 100 tons of equipment off off of an asteroid of the moon or, or you know, instead of from the Earth, then it will greatly re- reduce the amount of mass it will take to put something in geosynchronous orbit. Because you won't even need to raise it from geo To, uh, to, uh, from from low Earth orbit to GEO, because it takes three times the weight of the object you want to move, uh, in propellant just to move it from low Earth orbit to geosynchronous orbit to say nothing about getting it into low Earth orbit. So that will be a huge reduction in cost once they can move, once they can fabricate the parts, deliver them to GEO, and then probably have uh, a ro- remotely operated robot, you know what they call tele- tele-operated robots, to do the actual assembling. And eventually, it will be all robotic. Probably using jig factories uh, designed specifically to build power satellites in, in GEO. And there's lots of room in GEO for, for uh, satellites, especially with G- for the GEO system, to, for the satellites to know exactly where they have to. Uh, stay and exactly how far they are from any other satellite so they don't bump into it.
1: Um, Karen in Houston says, uh, David, you mentioned that John was part of the ISDC. I'm planning to attend. John, do you know if there are any talks or panels on space, solar power, and nuclear propulsion in space that we can attend?
2: There usually is a session. And it usually is the earliest session at the convention. And sometimes they don't even advertise that day as being part of the convention for some reason. But, um, yes, I usually do have a number of sessions there. I've not, I have been so busy, I have not really looked at the schedule for it. But I would make sure you get there probably like on Wednesday to make sure you get, uh, the convention typically runs Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and um, some of the people involved, like for example, uh, Lee, um, what's his name, the guy who we're, we're giving him an award. Uh, in fact, right sitting in my hall right now, are most of our large awards, uh, the Von Braun Award, which is made out of stainless steel, about fifteen inches tall, and all the all the supports for the Pi- Space Pioneer Award. And uh, they will be shipped to uh, the area of Irving, Texas, on Monday. I take them up to the corner UPS store. They'll all be shipped and hopefully safely arrive there. So that's all. It's all. All this is going on while I've been getting ready for this for this uh, session today. So let's see. Um, it, I think the key to um, production of space solar in bulk, an in typical power satellite. For like a typical five gigawatt power satellite, initial ones might weigh between fifteen and twenty-five thousand tons. They would probably be built using ground materials. You could build a a one gigawatt satellite; would still be worthwhile to build the retenna. The retennas typically uh, are about I think eighty kilometers uh, or or so, but they you can use the land underneath the retenna grid for farming or grazing. And you could build it over a desert you wouldn't hurt the desert. So it it wouldn't really hurt the the occupation of the land. You wouldn't want to build it right next to a city, but you would want to build it next to a major uh, high-tension power line so you can get the uh, power from the site to the city. Uh, But once you you have access to uh, materials from off-Earth, then the big thing will be how quickly and efficiently can the power satellites be constructed? The secret that to, to that is a jig factory. The jig factory is an industrial jig, not a dance. And in fact, there is a. I found a jig factory once on the Internet, which was an Irish school on, on dancing. Um, and it's an industrial tool to keep all the parts of a workpiece, a thing you're building, motionless while you're working on it. In this case, the entire factory is the jig, and the jig is the factory, that you're talking about an object mi- miles or kilometers long inside. But you have to be kept in in, in position very precisely. And as the robots take all the parts from a tug, and the, the ro- uh, unloading robots unload the parts, they then take them on robot trains into the vac- factory where, where the work robots Assembler robots take the parts off the train, move to their workstation where they know exactly where they are. They know exactly where the uh, work. He says, and they attach the pieces to the um, to the uh, power satellite, the, the the back edge of it that's being built, and the satellite is gradually extruded, the finished part of it from the edge, the open edge of the jig factory. There's a, a there's the image that that NASA drew. In my book that I show in my chapter on space solar power, it shows this original, uh, artwork, and I tried for several years to find who the artist was. I never could find. I just attributed it to NASA. And NASA doesn't even acknowledge that they created the term jig factory. I'm sure I remember it, but I use the term jig factory. I, once a couple of years ago, I got it back onto the internet. It was there for a while, then it disappeared again.
1: Uh, so define it again for us, okay?
2: Okay, jig factory is a very large structure. Doesn't have to weigh very much, but it's a stiff structure that to keep things. If you put things in orbit and they're not together, they will slowly drift apart due to the gravity gradient forces. Because each object is, is in own is its in own individual orbit, and so it, it, because it's in its own orbit, it will slowly drift apart from any other object even though those objects are touching each other initially so the basic rule of a jig factory is everything must be attached to something else so nothing drips away and there would be a special robot whose duty it would be to retrieve objects that got loose that would be and and the basic rule is no space to bring inside the factory there also is a shell uh, a thin shell around the factory to reduce thermal heating and contraction because of metal. If you've driven over a bridge, you know what expansion joints in a bridge are, right?
1: Uh-huh.
2: So our 50-foot bridge here on our property uh, has an expansion joint. And when the first cold snip in the winter, you can actually see this 50-foot-long concrete slab shrink in length by about an eighth of an inch. It's quite amazing to see that solid concrete slab slit, shrink, but it doesn't break anything because the bottom, the lower edge of the slab is on sliding bolts, and the top edge is bolted to the concrete. That's how they build expansion uh, j- uh, joints into bridges. Part of it's attached, and part of it is allowed to move a little bit, but th- the weight is still supported. Otherwise, the bridges would, would be broken by by the heating cooling of the Sun um, what, what other questions might you have I could talk at length about jig factories for use for use in building any large structure base colonies of any shape the key to a jig factory design is that the factory must be designed to fit the shape of the object that you're building so that shape one can move past the robot it's like it's a, a three dimensional assembly line and two move out of the structure, uh the jig factory structure when that part of it is finished on a smooth basis. So a uh, jig factory uh uh for a for a um, power satellite would be like a long narrow box with one side open. That's where the where the power satellite comes out. Uh a um a chick factory for a for a Stanford torus would look like a huge piece of macaroni, about 300 meters in diameter or so, um, and it would. Uh, let's see, how, how big is it? I forget how big the thing is, and the the torus tube inside. Okay, it was 200 meters. I guess that's about right. And so the robots would have room to work. It wouldn't be too close to the workspace, but the robots would be able to reach the ra- the rail. Robot cars bringing the parts in and then move back to their workstation and assemble the thing. And it's, this a jig factory operates on a repeat, assemble, move, repeat, assemble, move basis. Uh, so the robot assembles, everything stops. The, the jig factory pusher plates move the whole object, whether, whether it's a parasite or a space colony or a starship, whatever, out into space. And then the next set, the same set of robots works on the next identical section of the satellite. It's a very simple concept, but it works. Just like uh, Henry Ford invented the assembly line where, where the assembly line moves past the workers, they had previously invented an assembly line where the work, where the workers had to move past the pieces that were being assembled. Henry Ford had a better idea. And that's why one reason he was so successful, uh, other than really taking care of his workers.
1: Hey, John, yeah. y- you've got a caller. Let me take your caller, okay? okay? Uh Hi, caller. Welcome to our program. Who are you? Where are you, please?
0: Hey, David. This is John in Fremont. Welcome. California. <laughs>
1: how, how are you doing? Oh, yeah,
0: hi. Good, good, good. Uh, hi, John. Um, I'm looking forward to meeting you at ISBC, and um, I'm sure that... Uh, you know, we'll have big discussions on space-solar power there. Uh, last year I was there, and um, uh, Nikolai Joseph from uh, NASA's um, Office of uh, Technology and Policy Strategy, I forget the exact name of the, the department. It was reformed recently. Right, right. Um, said said uh, that, you know, they're, they're coming out with a, a, a new study, on space solar power, and uh, it's coming soon, and uh, we expect it in September. Got to September, it got put off until at some later time, and now I'm hearing from my sources uh, that Nikolai Joseph has moved on to a different position. Um, but they, but they, they, my sources believe that this paper or this. Um, uh yeah study will uh, come out sometime later this year well you um, understand
2: how molasses
0: moves right when it's cold yes yeah 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 exactly <laughs> i know i know so so everyone else is uh, uh, europe is working on this japan has plans uh, they've actually put it into regulation that they're going to have a, a demonstrator by 2025 China uh, china's working on it um, how how will this be coordinated? Does it have to come from the top? In other words, it's not going to be a NASA program, and DOE doesn't do space. So h- how are we going to pull this together?
2: Well, uh, first of all, at the ISDC, I expect to bring at least 25 copies of my, my pairs of books along for sale. But... At the ISDC through the power satellite session, again, you should be there early because they usually have the session very, at the very beginning of the event. So uh, I do not necessarily attend every space solar power session because I've been a supporter since nineteen seventy six and I've gone over all over over all this materials, but what I do is I try to keep up on what what people are developing. So if something develops that's really important. I will discuss it. Um,
0: so what, now, what was your specific question? Oh, about the uh, well, I, I've been to those uh, sessions. I, I I know what they are. They're they're you know they come up with their reference design. We can do this. We've got jig factories planned. We got all these detailed plans, but no one does anything.
2: Well, uh, you how how
0: do we get the NASA
2: has no sense of urgency unless they're interested, unless the top people are interested themselves in the thing that they're interested in and want to push it along. Otherwise, it's molasses time.
0: So is it a March storm thing? Do we need to get Congress to uh, support this? Um, Because I'm sure that there would be um, um, bipartisan support for clean energy solutions well, you know, to the, our uh, energy problem.
2: If there was a solution to the clean energy problem, then the problem would go away, and the people who who are against energy would would lose their their positions of power, political power, all of it. It would be completely gone. The whole anti-energy movement would be squashed by space solar power. That's why they're terrified of it.
0: Well, there has to be a mix. I don't think we're going to do just space-solar power, period. There has to be a mix. And, you know, gradually fossil fuels will be reduced, but it's – I mean, we need them now. We need power um, for for many years to come. And so there's going to be a mix of nuclear. There's going to be a mix of space-solar. There's going to be, you know, uh, renewables. There's going to be a mix. So um, it's not all one or nothing.
2: Well, see, I, I'm 100% in favor of that. But right now, they're still shutting down a natural gas plant, uh, which is the, the, one of the cleanest energy sources in terms of carbon that there is. There's no more places to build hydroelectric dams. You're not going to get out of that. Uh, it takes probably even, even even if all the regulations that were created by the Greens their, and the, the environmentalists uh, in, with their influence on the feds, in the 70s and 80s, even if all those are rescinded, a nuclear uh, plant it still takes a probably a minimum of five years to build, and with the regulations it'll take a decade to build. So that's not going to come along until 1933. I mean, 2033. So uh, so what we need right now is for them to stop shutting down reactors, for them to stop shutting down uh, natural gas, and for them to stop Stop shutting down coal plants, at least until we have replacements for the old plants. And I don't mean replacements daytime only or wind time only. I mean we call base load power, which is 24-7 electricity with a backup. Which means like a huge battery farm or a huge uh, um, pumped hydroelectric plant with a huge reservoir. And, and then not in the Niagara Falls area where we used to live, they had this enormous reservoir. Took the water from Lake Erie, pumped it from the Niagara River uphill into this reservoir, which was built just for that purpose, um, and then dur- during the night and during the day, dumped it down to the pump generators into the forebay bay of the main plant that, that dumped more water down during the day into the 400-foot-tall penstocks of the main generators and generates more power. So it's a good source of power if you have a new site. Where's the new site?
0: Yeah, okay. Well, um, that's all I wanted to uh, say, and I'll let someone else call in, David. Thank you for um, your call, John. We'll see you
1: all at ISCC. Really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, well, let's me up. Uh
1: Uh-oh.
2: What?
1: Oh, I I thought I hung up on you, John. I'm sorry.
2: Uh, no, I'm still here. Okay,
1: no, I, I've cleared the line if somebody else wants to uh, do the toll-free calling. Uh, it is 866-687-7223. You have another email, uh, and this is from uh, AJ. in. Uh, uh,
2: AJ, he's on our, on our discussion group.
1: Okay, so he says I'm speaking on Space Nuclear Thursday during my... ISDC talk uh, titled Why Space Exploration at 10 a.m., which is part of Living in Space Track, organized by Dr. Bell. Nuke is going to be absolutely essential for energy for living off planet. Thank you, AJ.
2: Well, so he's probably talking about surface use, and the addition we can use reactors for nuclear thermal propulsion. Which gives you twice as much propulsion uh, uh, per pound of propellant as chemical propulsion, maybe three times, but it would be a little hard to repair the engine. So those engines would be used for a certain amount of time, and you could probably refill the tanks, but you couldn't service the engine unless you had a radiation resistant robot, which they, they, maybe they'll come up with that. So I support all these different, I support a multitude of different energy solutions. Because we really do need uh, the anti-energy the, the groups who try to shut down as many forms of energy production as they can. So the more forms we can come up with, it's a little bit harder for the anti-energy people to shut them down because there's simply more targets that they have to
1: shoot at. Um, Dr. Sherry Bell sent in a note and said, uh, basically I'm paraphrasing her, Uh, A few minutes ago, you you mentioned all the uh, ISDC awards and the Pioneer Awards. Uh, You should mention who's getting the Pioneer Award, plus the fact your host is getting one. You might want to do a shout-out for that since you're on David's show. Well,
2: yeah, Dr. Livingston is going to be getting a Pioneer Award in the the, uh, media, space media category. Uh, Let me – I didn't expect to – to, uh, talk about the ore specifically, but I'm simply going to carry in the box. It's the fastest way to do it. Give me about 10 seconds here.
1: Too bad I don't have a clock beating off the 10 seconds.
2: No, I can read it right off the plaque. <laughs> he has some difficulty with the wording of the plaque for the Von Braun Award, which is about a 15-inch tall sculpture with a and a uh, uh, Von Braun cherry rocket from the early 1950s. Okay, so we have one going to Michelle Hanlon, who was mentioned earlier. We have, and these are the bases I'm pulling out. The, the, the globes are delivered separately from California, by the way. Okay. We have one to Jared Isaacman, who's, who's um, funded uh, an orbital flight with a crew, private crew. Um, I gotta get the peanuts off the flag here. We'll go, we have one to Dr. David Livingston, host and creator of the Space Show, and that's for Space Media. And the last one here is Dr. Pascal Lee, who's gonna be also on the program and will be running the Mars track and I will be on the Mars track talking about um I'll have to figure out what my main my main, main talk is that it's gonna be about at that Mars track. But so those those are the four um let's see here. Oh, okay now now remember that uh, Michelle is, Michelle's award is the uh, Space Activist of the year. The other three are the um, Space Pioneer Awards, and the one who goes to Lee will use my new Mars globe instead of the Moon globe. And I asked him wh- which would he prefer. He said, "Oh, definitely the Mars globe." You know, a couple of years ago, I funded the uh, creation of a new Mars globe for anything associated with Mars, and and Lee, of course, has been a great proponent of Mars science and exploration and supported the. Uh, Mars simulator sites up on Devon Island, so it's uh, certainly uh, certainly
1: appropriate. I have another email for you. Are you ready? Go ahead. Uh, so um, I'm going to preface the email because this uh, comes uh, a, a little close to the to the line on our effort to to try not to to take partisan sides. I, but,
2: I understand that. Okay, uh, but I'm, uh, I'm... I didn't mention which party The became... The well, <laughs> <the forest> <laughs> uh yeah.
1: ben, ben in Denver says, gentlemen, um, if you really want to know why no progress is made on space-solar power or very little progress is made, and the same for nuclear, as Fremont John asked, You have to quit listening to the words that Congress and politicians say as to what they intend to do, what they're doing for humanity, and what their intent is because they're damn liars. The real intent of the energy policy that the U.S. is undergoing right now and many other policies is to have a policy that a particular ideology can control. They don't care about the energy supply They don't care about clean energy coming from space. They don't care about energy that might benefit humanity or people coming over the border or supplying more energy for the United States. They only care about that in order to win votes and to get money for their causes. What they really want is to be able to be in control, and the way they get in control is through scarcity and they are creating scarcity, but you would never know that because they don't talk that way. They talk as if they're saving humanity, and they do seminars and workshops and everything you can imagine to promote what is a big lie, because that is not really their intent. And the sooner people wake up to the fact that we're being misled, mislied to, we have idiotic reporters who won't tell the truth, and maybe don't know the truth, then as soon as this starts to become widespread, we can actually find people that will work to put together policies that they really care about rather than having control over other people. I think this is the real reason. I know this email will probably cause a lot of hate and problems and other responses. I'm not going to read exactly what he said, but this is what's going on in the country And people better wake up because we are being hurt. Millions of people are being hurt, and our future is being sacrificed, and it's all a lie, and you need to understand what's really behind all of this. And this is from Ben in Denver.
2: So basically all I said is true, of course, but it's more than just the question of power. All the political parties want to be in power. Because it gives them power over other people, and that, that they enjoy having power over other people, just like the, uh, the green groups do. But because the mass media agrees, like 90% of them agree with the green, the, the radical green groups, uh, there are green groups who are, who are not, not radical, not, not radical, they right. They support the environment, um, then it's a double whammy because, the people who want to be in power have been indoctrinated through and through at all levels for the last 30, 40 years by the mass media spreading the environmentalist idea. And so their intent of the, of the who are, I'm not going to mention who's in power, is to deliberately decrease our and shrink our economy, decrease our, um, energy ability to, to do things. Uh, make it, make us more vulnerable to other countries if there's a war. And I mean, I go, I, and, and, I, and I actually damage our social structure in, in every way, at every level that you can imagine. And I see this every day going on. Uh, so, uh, you have to, it's, it's just, it's more than just a quest for power. But it's, it's a power quest partly driven, driven by I- ideology, which is about as damaging as any as anything you could imagine I, other than atomic weapons being used by Americans against themselves
1: but i i think his takeaway uh and Ben if you're still listening and it'd be really great if you called the show rather than emailed but i i think Ben's takeaway is that if you really want to know why there's no, pro- no progress in these things. Look to see what's really happening uh, under the surface and quit believing their rhetoric as to what they say their intent is and all the goodwill that they want to do for people and saving humanity. L- look at the results of their policies and see what's happening, and that is their true intent, because if they didn't want that to happen, they could create other policies. So I think that's what Ben is trying to say.
2: Right. Uh, well, uh, so. as I would go, if I had gone into the whole energy issue initially instead of the Boca Chica issue, I had a whole explanation ready for to um, explain how complex energy issues actually are. If energy issues were simpler, then people couldn't be bamboozled as easily. But if people suddenly think there's, or, or, if there's going to be a sudden awakening. Of political uh, knowledge, uh, this has all been going on for forty years. So, what new thing is going to happen to change that? People are still dead, vote voting almost evenly for the two parties, and I don't necessarily see anything happening. The worst it gets, people still keep voting in the same direction. Right. So, I'm not. I'm. I'm. Let me put it this way: I'm an optimistic skeptic.
1: Well. Maybe you ought to someday. Well, you're getting up there in years, but 80 doesn't seem to be a stopping point for running for office anymore, so why don't you run for Congress?
2: Somebody has to explain and figure out what's actually going on. In the mass media, they wouldn't, if you look at the mass media, they don't hire conservatives, they only hire hard liberals. So, you know, there are plenty of people already on the internet. Who are broadcasting are the, the you know more conservative message on a multitude of issues. I, I use a few of them. Uh, usually, when I'm looking for information, I'm looking for something very specific a piece of information uh, on on some current situation. And I but I think in terms of not just little snapshots of what's going on, but I think of what's happening as a continuous process. And but because and people think in terms of what's happening right now or or a certain moment in the future, you sort of have to look at it at a snapshot you sort of, i say where, where should we be in the future, and then what could we do to get there and unless you can find a way to convince like a few percent more of our, of our public voters to either go out and vote or to be aware of who they should vote. And when they they simply the average person cannot understand the, the complexities of the energy issue, because you know, as I said, um, you know the word con man comes from the word confidence man. And they, the con man gets your confidence, and then he can say you you he will you will believe anything he says, and then he gets your money.
1: Let's take the phone call, and maybe we'll get to a different. Topic. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the program. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh this is Tim from Huntsville. Hi, Tim. Go for it. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I want. Yeah, you brought up the Stanford Taurus, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I I remember when I was when I was young, I read that one of the uh, one of the methods they were plant that they were st- planning on using to build uh, these large rotating space. Stations with vapor deposition. Basically, they're going to blow up and they're going to inflate a large balloon and spray, uh, I guess, molten metal on it and let it just uh, kind of kick on there. Have you ever heard that?
2: I've heard. Uh, I've, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of applications for, for vapor deposition. Now, if they can scale it up, so the vapor deposition can build char- continuous structures hundreds of meters across. The, uh, my relatively modest, um Denver tourists that I use in, in book two, uh, which is well illustrated, by the way, uh, is only, It's only two kilometers across and the tur- the tourist tube is 200 meters across. So, but you're talking about a huge structure that weighs hundreds of thousands of tons. So it's like multiple ocean liners or multiple, uh, oil, uh, oil, um, carriers all, all last together in, in terms of mass. So uh, I, I it's quite possible you, you could develop uh, uh, the ability to do things like that so that instead of robots, uh, actually building the thing, uh, so you would have a ring of vapor deposition, but it might still be in the jig factory, and the, the vapor deposition equipment would be relatively close what you call the working surface, the uh, the the workpiece, so that you can operate that under in a controlled environment without the expansion and contraction of the of the workpiece whenever it went into shadow or sun, because the sun, remember, is thirty percent stronger in space than it is on the ground, and thermal expansion in construction is a major issue.
1: Tim.
3: Oh, okay, yeah, that's one of the, yeah, when you brought thermal expansion, I was wondering how that would be an issue with, uh, I guess, uh, a, a continuously solid, uh, structure like, uh, the, uh, like a, uh, Stanford torus.
2: Have you heard of friction stir welding?
3: Yeah, I've heard of friction, fri- uh, friction welding.
2: He's an area up, they have a rotating hot, uh, tool that they stick into the hot metal, and it spins very rapidly along this welding seam. The friction caused by the stirring of the hot metal melts the metal ahead of it along the seam that's going to be welded, and it leaves a seam that's almost invisible, and they can actually do this to weld rel- relatively thin materials. I thought they would need at least quarter or half-inch thick material to do this at all, but apparently they can weld the... Uh, the starship uh, uh, pieces, which I now told are now four, mil, uh, four millimeters thick, not three, which is, you know, that's like thirty percent white thicker.
3: Oh, that is which impressive! Is really,
2: an amazing. Well, let's get.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead, Tim.
3: Well, I was just thought that I was going to let y'all go.
1: Okay, thank you for. Are you going to ISDC by chance, Tim?
3: Oh, no, that's too far for me. i got a full-time job, and it's too far for me to drive, and I try to save off my off days so I can go visit my family.
1: Okay. All right. Uh, Stay in touch, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Uh, Listeners, Tim is uh, off the line. We're awfully close to a a 90-minute show. If you want to call us, we'd love to hear from you. 866-687-7223 is the number. You can uh, also email us at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, and there is still time if if you want to get a call in or if you want to get an email in. Um, you any you, more emails? Uh, not at the moment, I don't. I, I, Ben's was a, was the last one, probably. Oh, why don't I go
2: through a few of the arguments? There's space full of power to finish it off. Unless you wanted to ask yourself a question. No,
1: go ahead. Let's okay. l- finish so, that off in in the, all, in the remaining time. Yeah.
2: On the Earth, you have a thing called night, clouds, dust, fog, uh, a frost, snow, things like that that block the sun. Right. Right. In space, in GEO, you have basically 24/7 power all the time. And the sunlight there is is 30 percent, 36 percent stronger than on the ground. So you transmit that down to the ground, you get about 75 percent of the power uh, t- transmitted to the ground uh, on in the microwave beam, uh, and then you get a significant portion of that. Let me go through the, the efficiency change so you can see this. Okay, suppose you have a uh, uh, about a four square mile, a four square a kilometer. Uh, no i guess it's yeah, see I guess it's uh, I guess maybe fifty square kilometers, five by ten kilometers anyways um, sixty five gigawatts uh, anyways of sunlight coming in so out of that sixty five gigawatts of sunlight, the solar cells produce about twenty two uh, gigawatts of dc uh, energy that is transmitted to the transmitter out of the that comes a microwave beam. It has 19 and a half gigawatts. At, remember, a gigawatt is a 1,000 megawatts, as we're talking about, enough to power uh, half the city of Austin. Um, the the beam is received at the at the site. Uh, it comes in at about 19 gigawatts. Uh, of that, about uh, two gigawatts is, is reflected back or absorbed. There's 17 gigawatts. Goes to the converter rectifier to turn it into power. It comes out of that 15 gigawatts. It comes out as DC, and if you convert it into uh, alternating current for long distance transmission, you get about 14.8 gigawatts. So, uh, what we used to think of a of a five gigawatt power satellite, because the um, the solar panels are now three times more efficient in converting sunlight into energy. From like 30 years ago, you can get a 15 gigawatt uh, uh, power beam and and rectana installation out of the same satellite. How's that? So um, some of the other rationales: three um, quarters of a square kilometer solar array can capture one gigawatt of sunlight. No giant battery farms are needed since the sunlight is essentially available all the time power is available all night long and during cloudy weather the very high the, the 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 satellite system is very high power availability Most other kinds of systems have to go down for servicing a lot of the time when you have no moving parts you really don't need any servicing there's also high transmission efficiency from space to the antenna. there's a high conversion efficiency from microwave beams to electricity the amount of heat Produced on the ground from the beam to being converted is about 5% compared to about 65% for ground solar. So when you're making electricity out of ground solar, 65 of that goes into making heat on the ground right in the atmosphere. So so much for that. Um, there's a much smaller footprint in the ground. A 5 gigawatt power set would need a 100 square kilometer array. Compared to a 500-square-mile, uh, let's see here, yeah, uh, array and batteries for ground solar. I got this misworded a little bit here. I'll have to re- write, write that. The average estimate for the retina insulation is 10 times smaller ground area for space solar. Uh, much smaller total equipment mass. We're estimating the total equipment mass might be as much as 1,000 times less for space solar versus ground solar, probably including wind. The microwave beam is 25% as strong as sunlight, or only 250 watts per square meter. If you go out in the full sun, you're getting four times as much energy for the sun as you would get if you're standing right in the middle of the beam. So it's not going to boil your blood. Birds would, would love to sit in it to get warm during the winter. There's essentially no moving parts in the retina, or the satellite. Uh, The parts of the satellite are mostly identical to each other and can be mass-produced and assembled in place rapidly, as are the parts for the antenna. Unlike ground ground plants, which had thousands of dissimilar parts, Uh, the retina is virtually impervious to damage from wind and hail, as it is like thousands of small wire TV antennas. There's no damage to the solar array in space, rust, dust, snow, fog, corrosion, freezing, vandals, wind, hail, etc. The land under the volcano can simultaneously be used for farming grazing, and grazing because most of the sunlight gets through to the ground. The main roadblock for the p- space solar power was high launch costs and gives us taking care of that even though he doesn't believe in it. These uh, materials will also be able to be used a little bit later to construct the power satellite satellite to reduce transport costs even more. solar power saddle, uh portable the are now three times more efficient than they were thirty years ago. So that I went through the whole list in about ten minutes. So or I guess we're almost at the end of the end of yeah, the
1: so uh, I have two emails, so Tim sent in a note saying he forgot something. Blue Origin created a 3-D printer that takes lunar regolith and produces silicone wafers for photovoltaic cells, wants to know what you think. And Larry in Phoenix said, okay, you beam solar power down to a ground station outside of Phoenix in the Arizona desert. How far, in terms of mileage and direction, can that Arizona plant distribute the beamed power?
2: Okay, remember... The beam the beam goes directly from the satellite to the rectana only.
1: Fact, yeah, yeah, that's what he so it was a power plant in Arizona. Can it distribute it elsewhere?
2: Well, they're, they're transmitting power from West Texas solar farms and wind farms to to central and north and east Texas. That's five hundred to eight hundred miles and there is a huge fight by the ranchers to keep them from building the power lines that transmit multiple gigawatts. Power every day from West Texas to Central and East Texas. They're so it can be transmitted probably, you can probably transmit it across an entire, uh, uh, zone. You understand that the, like the ERCOT, the electrical, uh, uh, zone, was it, of Texas, uh, can only be about a thousand miles wide because that's the maximum width for an electrical distribution system because of the frequency of the 60 cycle. If you get, get too wide, it would be out of phase at some point. Just like a, an orchestra, if it was if it was a thousand feet wide, we would not be in sync with each you other. Right. It wouldn't work. And what was the first question?
1: Uh, 3D printing, uh, lunar regolith uh, for silicone wafers for photovoltaic cells from the moon, blue origin. He w- okay, wants so to know your lots thoughts. Lots
2: of silicon, lots of oxygen, and other metals on the moon. But... To make anything you have to you have to separate those materials from the regolith um, the, the easiest thing of course is the water you can get out of the ice and in the polar deposits and basically nowhere is out because any out is parts per million it's a joke um, but then you separate you you you, um, you reduce all the metals and then you have the individual metals like silicon then you have to purify the silicon a, a silicon wafer is completely useless unless it's extremely pure silicon then you have to dope the silicon very precisely to make the individual chips and you've got chips so the question is you know you have to have a whole series of, of equipment on the moon to do this it isn't one piece of equipment but with the help of the Starship stage once they get the the Starship launch system running uh, you should be able to launch 150 tons into orbit. And by refueling the uh, Starship stage with tankers, uh, using a number of tanker loads, which each tanker will land separately and be reused again and again. You might even reuse the tankers for the same launch, for the same mission from orbit. Uh, you can land at 150 tons on the lunar surface. And you can land, if you need hundreds of tons of equipment, on the lunar surface within a month or two and bring your lunar industry up rather rapidly. But you have to design the equipment first. And nobody, what they're doing, they're designing it on a small scale. But what I've said, on these current lunar missions, they should be sending prototype uh, pieces of equipment, really tiny pieces, to demonstrate each piece of the equipment to see will it work on the moon properly. Then once they knew that, then they could design the the uh, uh, industrial scale equipment. Then they can launch it to the moon. So they could it could be this could be ramped up very rapidly if people felt urgency. But NASA and its contractors feel no urgency. That's the issue.
1: Um, and of course, how do you get them to feel urgency? That's a sixty four dollar question, right?
2: Well, we we need to give the the Congress critters. Forty thousand lashes with a wet noodle. <laughs> uh,
1: they they might enjoy that, John. That that, <laughs> that that may be the wrong incentive. I I don't I don't oh, know. No. At least
2: you don't don't want don't want to hurt anybody. It's not like Captain Hook. I'm I'm not
1: I'm not I'm not qualified on how to give incentives to elected officials. Um, or
2: maybe maybe a better example would be the movie "Damn the Defiant." Um, uh, this is a good movie, by the way.
1: Uh, you have a late phone call coming in. Hang on. Uh, good afternoon, uh, caller, and uh, welcome to the call. Well Welcome to the show. Excuse me. Uh, who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, this is Sherry Bell from Las Vegas.
2: Hi, hey, Sherry. Sherry. Hi. you it I just want to say hi, you guys. <laughs> Did you have a question? Uh, in, uh, uh, how, many things, how many presentations are you making at the ISDC? I know that I'll be making one at the Mars Society. I'm extremely busy working on a number of additional projects which will be forthcoming. I can work on one project with Hoyt Davidson, another project with uh, with some other people. It will eventually be articles, might even eventually end up in articles in Adestra, But we won't know until we have the, the product. So, um, yeah. I'm not going to say too much about about it until we spring it yeah. on people who are, well, just, who are the intermediaries. Right. Well, are the, you know, uh, usually you're involved with uh, the space solar power track. Is Howard Bloom coming? And are, are they going to do a I little space solar is power? Coming, but, uh, uh, I know that that coming, but I know that um, Lee, um, what's his name? Pascal Lee will be running the Mars program. And I will be giving... Yeah, but Mars-based solar
1: in, town. Uh,
2: ...on that. Probably I'll yep, be giving yep. my, my uh, volatile transfer program where you take the nitrogen on Pluto and give Mars its atmosphere back. If that nitrogen is doing absolutely no good uh, sitting on Pluto. And we won't even use right. all of it. Right. It'll take a, take a century or, or and a half to, to move it all, but then you bring... You give Mars its atmosphere back and water will flow, the dust will disappear and then you can put blue-green algae in the water if nothing else, and it will start to make oxygen all by itself right just like it did four uh, two and two billion years ago right the, the great oxygen revolution and all the poor uh, anaerobic bacteria died. Great, one well, of the greatest right. extinctions in Earth history, created by life-giving oxygen. The bearer. So energy. you're going to kill all the anaerobic uh, life on Pluto? Huh? <laughs> well, there's no. I'm life kidding, life. John. It's, it's a joke. I know, a i a joke. A good example of anaerobic <laughs> life is botulism. It's bot? But, well, you yes. use botulism for people who want it, who want to have their faces modified, but uh, it can kill you. If you get if you get it in a can of, of soup or something, it can yep. only grow yep. where there's no oxygen at all. You know, it's descended from one of the, bacteria-like organisms that existed b- before the oxygen revolution. <clears throat> so that dates back more than two point two billion years. Yep. Yeah. Oh
1: yeah. Anything else? Right, Mary? Well, I, no, I don't have any other questions. Thank you. It was nice talking to you, John. Thank and I nice, okay, nice well, talk to you, David? Okay, exactly. you at ISDC. Uh huh. Thank you for your uh, call. See you. See you soon. Uh, John, any concluding comments you want to uh, offer or, or share with us for the for the program?
2: Okay, well, just for the audience, some of the people are interested. Have been interested in my book. Uh, if you live in the Austin area, I have multiple boxes of the book, uh, printed, uh, uh, pr- uh, published in Ontario uh, near Burlington. Printed in, in Toronto, Ontario, and ma- shipped down here. And I've got, I believe I have enough for the ISDC. But anybody in the Austin area can get one for me and I'll autograph it. If you go to the ISDC, you can buy them for me and I'll autograph them. Okay, and that's, a, that's a lower price if you want to buy it directly from Apogee Books. Um if I put this on the back of the, of the document I think here. Um it's, uh, you can, there, you can order, uh, from Robert Godwin at Griffin Music at on.aibn.com. Or you can just Google, uh, Apogee Books and see if you can get the, the, uh, email address from there. But you have to order each book individually. It, it doesn't, you never set it up to order the pair of books. It's, a uh, 751 pages total. 200 color images, 85 of those rendered for that book by Anna Nesterova, who lives in Tel Aviv, Israel. And I cover everything from what's going on right now with no coverage of space history except as absolutely needed. Ending it with humans uh, starting to settle and terraform an exoplanet.
1: Tell them the John, name of your... John, tell him the name of your books.
2: The two books are... Developing Space and Settling Space, and these books cover it in detail. Lots of people get these general books on space with very little detail. If you like detail and explanations of how it works, why we need it, and so forth, get my book. If you like images of space that nobody's seen before, get my
1: book. Okay, and listeners, we've done two previous space show programs with John about both books, so you can look him up in the archita- archives if you uh, want to hear him talk more about the books. John, will look forward to seeing you in uh, Texas, and uh, safe travels to you. Well, you, you still have to travel, just not as far as the rest well, of Well,
2: I just drive up there. It's four hours.
1: That's that's not bad. Yeah. In Ooh.
2: fact, going to to Boca Chica was eight hours each way. So it's very easy for me, because used to go up there... It was three hours to go to the North Texas Christmas party in the NSS chapter, and now it's four hours, so it's the same dri- distance driving anyway. Right. No well, problem at all.
1: All right, well, so why
2: we'll you get clear of Austin traffic.
1: <laughs> we'll see you at uh, ISDC, and thank you for being back on the space show today. All right, thank you. And uh, listeners, that's it for today. Remember Dr. Pascal Lee is back on the show Tuesday evening. 7 p.m. Pacific time Uh, you certainly want to hear Pascal and if you're going to ISDC you certainly want to meet Pascal, talk to him and hear his commentary and talks at ISDC as well Uh, thank you once again uh, John, uh, all of the callers and the emailers for participating in today's show Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend, have a great week coming up and as always on the space show Do keep looking up. Once again, goodbye from John David and The Space Show.